This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. We're going to be asking two questions, three questions uh, about this passage. And the first question is, like, what is it doing here? What is this psalm doing here at the end of the book of Samuel 1 and 2 Samuel? And the second question we're going to be looking at in particular is, I'm sure as we were reading it, it must have jarred at you because how can David in the middle of the psalm talk about his righteousness, talk about him not turning away from the Lord, clean before God? And the third question we're going to be looking at is how does this song, how does this psalm apply to us? So these three questions will guide us, but these three questions alone uh, will not help us because ultimately, uh, I'm so glad you chose the song uh, for us to pray together in song, Show Us Christ. Ultimately, this psalm, this part of God's word, we must look to God that through this part of his word, he shows us Christ. So please join me as we seek and plead for God to do that. Father, thank you that we can gather in this way. Thank you that we have your word open before us. And thank you so much that by your spirit, you hear our prayer, that our eyes may be open, that the scales may fall off and our hardened hearts you may make soft, so that the truth about your son you may implant more deeply in each of our hearts through your word, by your spirit, and for your glory we pray. So let's uh, begin to tackle the first question. What is this song, this psalm doing here, right at the end of the books of 1 and 2 Samuel? Okay, so uh, because of the little incident last week, we didn't get to uh, cover together uh, during the sermon the first part of this epilogue. But coming into chapter 21, all the way to 24, is the epilogue at the end of the life of David. And there's a very clear structure uh, in the epilogue, which if you look in the bulletin, I've tried to put there for you. Um, The technical term for this sort of structure is called a chiasm. Okay, Basically, the two outer layers uh, match each other. So you can see that the two outer layers are in story form. And the first one is about the sin of Saul, and the last one in story narrative form about the sin of David. And then the next inner layer, what I put as B and B prime, is a list. And it's list of David's mighty men. So you got narrative on the outside, and then the middle inner layer are list. And then the two central layers, the central core are two psalms. So very clearly, the writer of Samuel has uh, put this epilogue and arranged this very, very clear structure. And the way a chiasm works is that the core, the inner part, the middle section is the heart of what the writer to communicate to us. And so in this psalm, we are looking at the first part of the core, the heart of this epilogue. And so the focus is not on David. Right? We can come to the epilogue at the end of David's life and we, you can be thinking, okay, what is this epilogue trying to tell us about David? Well, that's the wrong question. It's actually trying to tell us about David's God as the psalm 
the call will make clear. It is about David's God. And the list, the list of mighty men are how God raises up these heroes, these mighty men, uh, uses these agents to further and to bring about his purposes. So all that we have seen in the life of David, his victories, his triumphs, his successes, his deliverances, all this has been from the hand of the Lord. Everything has come from the Lord. As you can see, verse 1, if you look carefully, makes crystal clear. David sang the song, sang to the Lord the words of this song. What does it say? When the Lord delivered him from the hand of enemies and from the hand of Saul. So the inscription already makes clear that this song is about God, the God who has delivered David. So let's look at the uh, first of six points in the psalm that we will go through. And the first part of the song, David sings about the Lord, our Deliverer, verses 1 to 3. Now look how the different ways God is described in these few verses. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I can take refuge. My shield, the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold, my refuge, my savior. From violent people, you save me. So the different ways God is described, uh, some as, uh, strangely enough, inanimate objects. But even more startling are the, the, the repeated word in these few verses. And I'm sure you did not miss it. The repeated word that is, my. David says, he is my rock, my fortress, and so on and so forth. Because David is not here proclaiming some abstract truth about God. But because of his experience, David has found out that this God is the one who saves and delivers him. He has experienced this personally, this rescue and help from God. And it is worthwhile asking us, do we just come before God and we know in our heads some abstract truth about God, that God is king and that God is savior and that this God is merciful. And we, and we know this, you know, predominantly in only an abstract way. But it is not enough to know this intellectually or in an abstract way. We need to know this like David personally. We need to know like David that this is my rock, my savior, my refuge. Like in the song that we sang, Oh, to see my name written in the wounds. It is not enough to affirm that, yes, Christ bled and died and he, and he suffered, that he had wounds, and wounds which were enough to cleanse and forgive the sins of the world. It is not enough to know that it is, you must, as the words of the song put it, you must see your name in the wounds that he bled and died for me. I was recently reminded uh, again about John Newton. John Newton, the ex-captain of the slave ship, converted, became pastor, and the writer of the most famous hymn, Amazing Grace. And how at the end of his life, 
um, when he could not preach anymore and he was, you know, losing his memory, friends visited him and friends reported that John Newton said, yes, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. That I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. See, this was a man who knew personally that Jesus Christ was his Savior. It is not enough to know this abstractly. You need to know this personally for yourself. And so David did, because David experienced it. And in verses 4 to 7, he talks about how he calls out. He calls out to God, his deliverer. Look at verse 4. I called to the Lord, who is worthy of praise, and have been saved from my enemies. Look at verse 7. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I called out to my God. And from his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came to his ears. Now, why is David calling out? Well, he's telling us uh, clearly. It's because of the danger and the distress that he's facing. So he describes the danger there in verse 5 and 6. The waves of death swirled about me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. You see how many times in those two verses he mentions death, uh, you know, the grave, uh, destruction. You see, because David is describing his distress and he's not talking about, you know, the minor hiccups of life that we go through, you know, like the handphone, no battery, or the flat tire, or halfway watching through the Korean drama, the computer hang, you know, oh my goodness, all this stuff, uh, hiccups in life. No, no, he's talking about facing utter destruction. Now, whether from the hand of Saul or from a Philistine army, these were his enemies who wanted him dead. They wanted to completely destroy David, and it's in that distress that David cries out to God. And in verses 8 to 19, we get a description of God hearing David's cry. Which leads us to the third point in the, in the psalm, the Lord's deliverance. Now what happens when God hears David's cry for help? Verses 8 to 19 describe that. Just look with me to verse 8, verse 8 to 10. When David cries out to God and God hears, Verse 8 says, The earth trembled and quaked. The foundations of the heavens shook. They trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. See, David is here using poetic imagery. He is using poetry and he is using language, language that reminds us of what happened when God first met his people at Mount Sinai in the days of Moses, where the earth trembled and there was smoke and there was fire. And David is using this poetic uh, imagery, using this language to convey uh, two things, two things at least, that God is angry and that God came down. Now, God is angry. 
And God is angry, not because, you know, David disturbed him, but God is angry because David's enemies, enemies of God are threatening his anointed king, his appointed king with destruction. And so God is angry that his appointed king is being uh, threatened with death and destruction. And God did something about it. God came down. He didn't just intervene from heaven, but the language, the imagery uh, David uses pictures God as coming down, personally parting the heavens, coming down to intervene and to deliver David. Now, those of us who have uh, been through, you know, for quite a while now, we went through the whole books of 1 and 2 Samuel, and we think back about some of those instances when David was delivered. And, you know, one of the first ones was when Saul was jealous about David. And, you know, when David was there, Saul, you know, he was playing with his spear. And all of a sudden, he, whoa, take the spear and throw at David. And then, what did David do? David, thankfully, he was, you know, young enough and his reflexes fast enough. He, whoo, he ducked, boom, you know, dang, 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 the spear was there. And then, you know, another occasion when, when Saul was really with his army pursuing David and, you know, he was about to catch David. David was cornered, he and his men. And then last minute, a messenger came to Saul and said, Hey, King Saul, the Philistines are attacking us. And then Saul and his army had to retreat, go back to Israel and defend and fight against the Philistines. And then David was delivered. And so the question we have is, you know, as we think back to those instances, is that where's the smoke? There was no fire. There was no earth shaking. Right? Well, uh, Ralph Davis, he says it this way. Yes, there was no smoke. Yes, there was no fire. But why? Why did all these things occur precisely when they did? Why all these deliverances? The poetry, the language that David uses, it provides the truth behind the historical facts. That all this, all these deliverances, all this came from the Lord. The earth-shaking, fire-breathing, enemy-bashing God. And David is using this language to powerfully describe to us that it wasn't just coincidences or, you know, things like that, but it was God who intervened and came down and delivered his king. And the fourth point of the song answers the question of why. Why the Lord gave deliverance. Verse 20 to 28. You see there in verse 20 that David says, He brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. He rescued me. Why? Because God delighted in David. And you see what he goes on to say. The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has rewarded me. Verse 22. For I have kept the ways of the Lord. I am not guilty of turning from my God. All his laws are before me. I have not turned away from his decrees. I have been blameless before him. I have kept myself from sin. I've kept myself from sin. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in His sight. And so obviously, like we come now to the second question that I raised. How can David 
talk this way. Talk about his cleanness and his righteousness. I've kept myself from sin. And obviously, right, we know second half of 2 Samuel was all about the sin of David written large. And so how how can David talk this way? So some people suggest that um, this psalm, you know, this song was written before David's adultery and murder and subsequent sin. That it was, you know, when he was that righteous king being pursued and, you know, he wouldn't take Saul's life and all that, that it was written before the second half of 2 Samuel. But notice the writer of Samuel places this right at the end so that the reader has encountered the sins of David. And uh, Tegyan was telling me that uh, the Bible study group counted exactly how many sins David uh, committed. And according to him, it's 16. Well, actually, in my life, if I sin only 16 times, I'd be very happy. But uh, these were the 16 recorded. Huh? But I mean, whether it's 1 or it's 16, we cannot get away from the fact that if David has sinned, how can he say he has not turned away from God? So how do we resolve this question? It can't be before he committed the adultery and murder and so forth. Now I think a key word there is at the end of verse 25. That the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness. According. See, it's according to my cleanness in his sight. That's the key word. Because when David sinned in his adultery and murder and Nathan the prophet came and confronted him and when David repented, God through the prophet Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. The Lord has put away your sin. And so David in speaking like this, he is speaking from the perspective that God has of him. Yes, it is very clear. And and the writer of Samuel is no idiot. He knows that he has told us about the sins of David. And, and, and here he's put this song right at the end and David talking as if he has not sinned. But from the perspective of God, God who has, in the words of Nathan, put away David's sin. From the eyes of God, David can speak this way. And so God is treating David in the way that God sees David. And David is writing, seeing his life, writing about his life in the way that God sees his life. So I think uh, for myself, that's the best explanation of why David can write this way. And so he goes on in the fifth part of the psalm to talk about the power, the power of the Lord's deliverance. And here David tells us that when the Lord came down and intervened, he did not just rescue David from his enemies, he also gave David victory. 
over his enemies. It wasn't just God intervening and giving David escape, but it was God intervening and giving David triumph. See with me uh, verse 30. Verse 30 says, With your help, I can advance against a troop. With my God, I can scale a wall. And then verse 35, He trains my hands for battle. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. You make your saving help my shield. Your help has made me great. And verse 38, I pursued my enemies and crushed them. I did not turn back till they were destroyed. I crushed them completely and they could not rise. They fell beneath my feet. And verse uh, 43, I beat them as fine as the dust of the earth. I pounded and trampled them like mud in the streets. You have delivered me from the attacks of the peoples. You have preserved me as the head of nations. People I did not know now serve me. Foreigners cower before me. As soon as they hear of me, they obey me. They all lose heart. They come trembling from their strongholds. So the power of God's deliverance is that God has granted David this victory, the complete and utter victory over his enemies. That's what David is talking about. And therefore that leads to the final part where David again praises the Lord our Deliverer. Verse 47, The Lord lives, praise be to my rock, exalted be my God, the rock, my Saviour. He is the God who avenges me, who puts the nations under me, who sets me free from my enemies. You exalted me above my foes. And so on and so forth. And then the last verse of the psalm, he says, He gives his king great victories. He shows unfailing kindness. And this is the word for God's covenant love. His sovereign, unfailing love. Because of his covenant, his pledge to his people. He shows unfailing love to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. So how does this song, this psalm apply to us? Can we sing this psalm? Can we sing, the Lord is my rock, the Lord is my refuge? Can we sing about the Lord intervening and granting us, you know, victory over our enemies, delivering us? Well, if you're thinking in your head, yeah, yeah, yes, why? Of course we can sing this. Then, okay, that's great. Okay, that's a great instinct. But I want to say we cannot, yes, we can sing it, but we can't sing it directly. Because we can't sing it the way David did. Because David is unique. David is the king. David is not just, you know, the average Israelite which we can relate with, but David is the king. He has a special and unique position. He is God's appointed, anointed, chosen king. This is the one who is singing. And he is singing about how God has delivered, has granted victory to his king. So we are not kings. So we cannot sing it the way uh, David 
sang. Because this is not a song for the average Israelite to sing. The average Israelite, as they, as they sing this, as they see this in Samuel, they, they will not sing it because they recognize, no, David has a special position. David as king. And David is the king singing about God granting the king victory. But you see, it does apply to the average Israelite. Because the average Israelite in hearing this song rejoices because what's important for the average Israelite is that he has a king that can sing this song. That the average Israelite can praise God that yes, my king can sing about God delivering him, about God granting him victory. Because if God has granted our king victory, then as the people under this king, we share in that victory as well. Because if our king is victorious, it means that the average Israelite has a share, a blessing in the victory that God has granted his king. And so likewise for us, the crucial question for us is, do we have a king that can sing this song? Do we have a king for whom God has given the victory over his enemies? And the answer is yes. Yes, praise God, of course we do. Because our king is not David. Our king is great David's greatest son. You see, at the end of verse 51, he gives his king great victories. He shows his covenant love, his unfailing kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. And this makes us think about God's promise to David that one of David's descendants, one of his descendants, will be that forever king who will reign forever and that king is our Lord Jesus Christ. And can you see that that Jesus, Jesus can sing this song because Jesus has experienced the waves of death that the torrents of destruction did overwhelm him. For David, he talked about it metaphorically, you know, overwhelm him. But David never suffered death and defeat at the hands of his enemies. I mean, you know, close, you know, very close, you know, close, but God always delivered him. But our king went to the death. He faced death and he faced destruction. It completely overwhelmed him. And our king did see the deliverance. God did intervene. God came down and intervened. And it wasn't just poetic language. When Jesus resurrected, when the tomb burst open, literally the ground shook. And God vindicated and delivered his king, our king, raising him to life again. And as we tried to explain about how David can sing about his righteousness, his cleanness, you know, we've got to do some mental just, Oh yeah, it was in his sight, and then it's because God put away his sin, and then you know, and then people got other other theories. Yeah, 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 yeah. But with Jesus Christ, no issue. He can stand before everyone and say these words and mean every single word that that he has not sinned. He has not turned away. He has kept all the ways of the Lord. And no one can find any fault with our king. He is the one that can say these words and mean it 100%. And yes, Jesus Christ 
has defeated his enemies. He has beaten them as fine as the dust. He has trampled over them. He has triumphed over his enemies. And the enemies that our king has triumphed over, it's not just some strong Philistine army. He has triumphed over the forces of darkness, triumphed over Satan, over sin, over death. That's why in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Death has been swallowed up in victory. And he can taunt death. He can say, oh, death, where is your victory? Where, oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because our Lord Jesus Christ has obtained that triumph, that victory over Satan, sin and death. Now because we, by faith in Him, we are His people, we share in that victory through God has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have a King who can sing this song. So I want to think uh, with us specifically about what this means for us in our fight against sin. That because of our king's victory over Satan and sin, we need to affirm God's forgiveness of our sin. He has defeated Satan, defeated sin. And so when we do sin, and as 1 John calls on us to, when we sin and confess and confess and trust that God hears and He is faithful and just, He will forgive and cleanse us from our sins. We must, uh, we must believe that because our King has the victory over Satan and sin, that when we confess and come to Him, He is able to forgive us and to cleanse us from all our sins. I think some of us, our problem is that we find it easier to confess. We find it easier to dwell on our sin. And what is hard for us is to believe that God has utterly and completely forgiven our sins. And that we need to learn from David in this way, that because God says this to be true, because our King has been given the victory over sin. We can speak like David. You see, David, right? We know, right? His sin, written large. Adultery, murder, so on and so forth. But because he can see God's perspective of him, he can say these words in verse 21 onwards. But can you see, we have so much more than David. David only had the words of the prophet, prophet Nathan. We have, and now we know how God can see us as righteous. Because the sinless one took our place, bore our sin. 
that because of that, there is this great exchange in which our sins now placed on Him and His righteousness placed on us. And so we must believe and affirm that our King has the victory over sin so that we must see ourselves as God says in His Word, how He sees us because of Christ. He sees us as righteous as Christ. And the Bible's word for this is justification. God's verdict over us is that we are righteous because of Christ. You know, we've been singing that song, you know, Grace Awaiting Me. And I always like that part in the chorus where it says, Grace, grace that's greater than our feelings. It means no matter how big your feelings are, you think your feelings are this big, or is this big, or is this big, or you know, you stretch out, and you know, my, my feelings are this big. But a song affirms that because our king has been given the victory over sin, grace is even bigger. Grace that's greater than our feelings. So we must affirm and trust and believe, yes, our sins, as we confess them and come before God, it is forgiven. And God sees us as righteous in Christ. Now, the second way that we can think about our king's victory over sin is, uh, like I described to, you know, uh, one of my students who, you know, confessed to me that, that he, he's not Christian yet and he's finding it hard to cross the line. You know, he's born in a Christian family, been to church all his life, but he's finding it hard to cross the line. And the reason is because he, he sees that you know, God is a killjoy. You know, once he, once he crosses the line and becomes a Christian, he got to, he got to say bye bye to all the fun things. You know, like all the fun things his friends are doing. And then, and one of the things he said to me was, hey, once I become a Christian, uh, that means I can't go out with non-Christian girls. But you see, the Christian girls are so boring, but the, the, the non-Christian girls, they are so fun, they are so, they're more exciting. And then, I mean, he, what's holding him back is that, you know, he, he doesn't want to cross the line because he crossed the line, then he, no, he can't. So the way he pictures it is that if I become a Christian, then he's a Christian like, oh, you know, that, that as a Christian now, that he's longing for all those things. Oh, I want to do those things, but you know, now I'm a Christian and, and God is such a killjoy and I can't do these things that I want to do. So the way I tried to help him see it is uh, I asked him what he liked to eat. And he said, okay, I like to eat pizza. I said, okay, you like to eat pizza. So if you have a choice between pizza and chicken rice, what will you choose? Pizza, of course, I like to eat pizza. Okay, then how about pizza and burger? Pizza, of course, I told you I like to eat pizza. So he will always choose pizza because he wants to eat pizza. Then I said to him, because of the king's victory over sin, it means that he will so work in you that as you become a Christian, even though you You've always liked pizza and you, you will always choose pizza, but because of his work in you, you will begin to lose your taste and desire for pizza. And instead, you want to eat bananas, fruit, you know, whole foods, you know, um, grapes, you know, like, I can't think of any, uh, avocado, you know, coconut oil, you know, things that, you, you, you want to eat these things, you know, instead of pizza because of God's work in you. You begin to lose your desire for those things that attracted you. Now, I'm not saying that this is an overnight thing. 
I'm not saying that there will be no struggle, but I am saying that because our king has victory over Satan and sin, that as we, as we struggle, as we trust in him, he will do this work in us where the things that formerly held us, attracted us, that we had such a hunger for, by his work in us, those things will cease to be as attractive. And the things of God will attract us more and more. I want to end by reminding us again from a song. Uh, in Christ alone, one of the stanzas says, There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his and he is mine. Bought with the precious blood of Christ. May God help us to know this and to live this out. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.